0: We're going to be continuing our Luke series this morning, and we are on a quest as a community to know and love and follow Jesus. And so we're diving deep into Luke's gospel. And one of the inevitable things that happens if you, if you take your time and you read a gospel slowly, and attentively is that your preconceptions about Jesus will be challenged because there's always more to see and know and to be startled by and adore if you're serious about taking into account the portraits of Jesus that they share with us. You know, more often than not, in our contemporary context, Jesus is portrayed as a meek and mild Jewish rabbi who just went around and oozed love and never incited controversy, or not that much, really, until the end. But as you read Luke's gospel, you see that the truth is from the very beginning, Jesus disrupted everything. He interrupted and overturned the status quo and every social norm and belief in his day. Everywhere he went, he left behind a trail of changed lives, but he sparked controversy everywhere. So for every heart that marveled at his miracles or the message of the kingdom of God that he proclaimed, there were 10 others who scowled and scoffed and some who wanted to throw him off a cliff. And so the temperature is already heating up in Luke's gospel and it will heat up even more as we continue our study because Jesus was and is, a savior who disrupts everything. Listen, if you decide to follow Jesus, expect transformation, but also expect disruption. Yes, and amen, there will be peace and newfound freedom and joy and purpose in your life, but also expect to be challenged and stretch, and dare I say, disrupted, because real change always involves an element of disruption. Now, some disruptions are welcome, like the snow this morning. As you looked outside, it was pleasant. It's amazing. It looks beautiful. But many times when God wants to change our lives, the changes that he introduces are painful and unsettling and we don't like those kinds of disruptions. Case in point, by a show of hands, how many of you have seen Marie Kondo's show Tidying Up or read her book? Okay, so, so many of you have, have been brainwashed or you've binge watched Marie Kondo's show on Netflix. For those of you that haven't she- seen her show, She's actually become so much of a meteoric success in our culture that her name is now a verb. So if you want to organize your closet, you condo your your closet. For those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, let me break it down for you. This is how the episode on Netflix will always go. First off, you have a couple or you have a family that realizes that they're powerless to tidy up their lives on their own. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely powerless. They, they cannot organize their garage, their silverware drawer, and they reach out. They need a savior. They need a savior. They need a deliverer. And they invite Marie Kondo into their lives, into their home. And she shows up and, and she just oozes peace and oneness and tranquility. And she's so kind, she's so kind. And she teaches people to to basically go into their closet and to just pull out everything and to put it into a big mound on their bed. And then article by article, you're supposed to hold the article and ask a central question to the condo method of organization. You ask the question, does this spark joy for me? does this spark joy? Does this turtleneck sweater spark joy? And if the answer is no, then you you thank the article for serving you and you pass it on. This is the condo method. And as she goes into people's homes, they're excited about about this this newfound change but then the disruption begins to to happen and there the marital conflict ensues my wife and i we made it two episodes in before we had a fight <laughs> two two but it went it went to our no-fly zone which is the garage the garage is the source of all marital conflicts <laughs> in The Kaufman family, because I I I own a lot of fishing poles, I own a lot of stuff, and and it's really like a Cabela's man cave. It it truly is. And my wife, we have different definitions around what sparks joy. I'm raising two boys, (laughs) camouflage, fishing poles, and things like that. And my wife, she's very sentimental. And she wants to keep everything that our children create and things like that. And so it produces conflict. It disrupts us when we try to organize together because we have different definitions about what sparks joy. And so it doesn't spark joy for me, and we wrote off her show. And so... (laughs) (laughs) Because we we couldn't handle it. We couldn't handle it. Now, think about this. It's a silly illustration. But if... A woman who comes into your life that wants to reorganize your silverware drawer and your sock drawer, if that could lead to disruption and conflict, how about a Savior who comes into your life not to tidy up a few things, but transform everything? Expect transformation if you follow Jesus, but expect some disruption as well and welcome it because our Savior disrupts us to change us. So if you're with me still, Open to Luke 5, we're going to be continuing our series in Luke with Christ's call to a tax collector named Levi this morning. We're going to jump back in in chapter 5 of Luke at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away for them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the new piece... From the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does the new wine will burst and the skin at burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine desert desires the new, for he says the old is good. This is God's word. Today, as we look at this passage together, we're going to consider the way that Christ Jesus has come to transform our lives and make us new. And as we'll see, every encounter with Jesus that leads to new life and lasting change involves three disruptions a disruptive call, a disruptive righteousness, and a disruptive power. Three disruptions, a disruptive call, a disruptive righteousness, and a disruptive power. First things first in this passage, what we see is the new life that Jesus brings always starts with a disruptive Call And this call and our text went to a tax collector named Levi. We read about him in verse 27. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, from Mark's gospel, we know that Levi lived and worked in Capernaum, a seaside town on the Sea of Galilee, the same town that had become the ministry headquarters and home to Jesus and his disciples. So he had likely heard about Jesus' teachings and miracles well before they met face-to-face that day at the tax booth. However, of all the things Christ did and said in Capernaum up until this point, none incited more controversy and more disruption in the town than his visit to Levi's tax booth. You see, Levi was undoubtedly the most hated man in all of Capernaum. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were not like the tax people that we know in our culture, although they are not always beloved. They are hated way more than you can imagine because they were more akin to mob bosses than the tax people that work for the IRS in our culture. They were trained extortioners who made their living by taxing people beyond what the Roman law demanded. You see, they were paid no salary by the Roman government. They were just given financial quotas for regions. And so Levi would set his tax booth up in Capernaum next to the Sea of Galilee. And as people would come by, if they caught like a big catch of fish, 20% of that would go to Levi, and he would take that, and then he would take more in order to pad his own pockets. And so, people that were tax collectors got very wealthy and rich by these positions. In fact, you had to purchase, you had to purchase and actually bid for these jobs. You would buy your way in to this job and then fleece everyone that you could to get rich. So as a result, guys like Levi would have been seen as traitors and collaborators with the Roman government by the Jews. They were bitterly hated, and ostracized, not even allowed into the temple, or if they gave a testimony in court, they were so corrupt that the court would dismiss their testimony. But Jesus saw something in Levi. Luke tells us that Jesus was the one that made this appointment with Levi and that he saw Levi the tax collector. And in him, he saw something within this man that made him miserable and weary and tired with his old way of life. So Jesus, our Savior, full of grace and mercy, looked the most hated man in that town in the eye and said, follow me. Now, you would think that if you were building a ministry team, the last person you would want on your team representing you would be Levi. If this would be like hiring Bernie Madoff to run an investment company, this, this on the surface, this seems like this is a bad recruitment moment in fact, I suspect Peter, James, and John, the fishermen, must have thought, wait a minute, Jesus, slow down. Let's think this through. Remember that big haul of fish that we brought in the other day? Levi took half of it. The guy's a crook. I mean, the fact that Jesus would put his own reputation on the line by recruiting Levi is remarkable. It's remarkable because Jesus knew exactly what sort of sinful man Levi was, and he called him to be his disciple anyway. This is why we see Levi's radical response to this gracious. Recruitment, This gracious invitation in verse 28, where Luke tells us that he left everything and he rose and he followed Jesus. Now what you need to know is Levi's decision that day to leave his old life behind and answer Christ's disruptive call that day came at a great price. When Peter, James, and John and Andrew left behind their boats and their nets to follow Jesus, these fishermen could always go back to fishing, but not so with Levi. The moment that he got up from that table and he left behind his books and his ledgers to follow Jesus, there was no turning back. You don't walk away from a job like this and expect Rome to hold a tax booth for you. It was bitted off to the next corrupt person in line. But Levi, something supernatural has happened within his life. He's weighed his life on the scales and found Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth to be more precious than all of his gold and his silver, and his security. And so he leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. The new life that Christ brings to us always begins with a call that disrupts and reorients everything about our priorities. The things that we live for. Here's how you can tell if you've answered Jesus' call in your life. This is how you can tell. You find a growing sense in your life that Jesus has to come first and everything else must take a back seat. He has to be first in everything. Every other priority must take a second place. To Jesus and following him. You see, I think so often in our culture, culture, we secretly want a Christianity that doesn't disrupt our priorities. The things that we live for, whether they be good priorities like family, or our jobs, our wealth, our reputation in the community, or our leisure, or rotten priorities like Levi lived for before he encountered Jesus. You see, before meeting Christ that day at his tax booth, Levi was a man who just lived for wealth, status, and his own purpose and pleasure. But meeting Jesus that day changed everything. Oh sure, on the outside, outwardly, Levi looked like the same crusty guy... But inwardly, he was no longer the same man who sat at the tax booth extorting people all those years. He was a new man with a new heart. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold the new creation. Has come. So, what we have here in Luke 5 is we have a new Levi who will go on to be Matthew the evangelist. The guy who used to extort people is going to be, in Luke's gospel, one of the first mass evangelists in Luke. Can I show you? This is so amazing. (laughs) Levi, he leaves behind. Everything, and you know what the next thing that he does is? And he's going to do this for the rest of his days. He invites all of his sinful friends over to his house. He cooks a big meal, and he introduces them to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The most hated guy in Capernaum, this extortionist, becomes Matthew the evangelist who wrote our first gospel account. Can somebody say amen? Amen. That is the transforming power of Jesus. If you say yes to his disruptive call, you have no idea the things that Jesus will do through your life. To share his power, his goodness, and his grace with others. Let's take a look at Levi's response as he leaves behind his tax booth. He wastes no time at all. Unlike us, many times we wait years and years to learn everything about Christianity before we even think of evangelizing. He gets straight to it, invites all of his sinful, crusty friends over to meet Jesus. That's what happens next in this story. It's in verses 29 and 30. Let's read this again. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, "'Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?' And here's where things get interesting. The camera's going to zoom out from Levi's tax booth into this party to teach us something about the disruptive righteousness of Jesus. I've got to tell you something. This scene here in Luke 5 is... One of those scenes where if I could be anywhere just to take in an account, this one takes the cake for me. I wish I was there. Don't you wish you were a fly on the wall at this party? I mean, can you picture with me the colorful mix of people and the awkward moments that must have ensued at this party that Levi threw at his house? That, that day. The gospel writer Luke, he tells us that all the tax collectors and notorious sinners of the city were there. Last week, as Pastor Guy was telling us about the gypsy joker biker gang, I thought to myself, you know what, that's probably the kind of crowd that Levi ran with. I mean, these were not nice people. They were the mob bosses. They were the extortioners. And so so actually Luke tells us that a large company of tax collectors were gathered together and the religious leaders are irate. And they say, why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Luke tells us Levi made a great feast for them all. Perhaps with some of the fish, actually, that he took away from Peter and the disciples, who knows? That's speculation, but you never know. Then the Pharisees and the scribes, they show up. Although it's doubtful they were on the invite list, you know, to to the party. These guys show up, you know, to the party, and they take in the scene, and they're really, really appalled, I mean, right there in the midst of it all among the beer bottle bottle and poker chip crowd sat Jesus of Nazareth. And they were absolutely indignant. Jesus is not lecturing them. He's sitting among them eating and drinking with this crowd. And the scribes are simply appalled at this, so they call Jesus' disciples aside. They don't have the courage to to confront Christ himself, so they call his disciples aside, and they say, what in the world is your rabbi doing? Doesn't he know who these people are? How could somebody who claims to be righteous, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And notice how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' criticism of his table fellowship with these tax collectors and sinners in this passage. His answer is actually very subversive and brilliant. It's in uh, verse 31 and 32. Read this again. Look at how Christ responds to their criticism. Criticism. He sees that, that the Pharisees are grumbling and agitated, and he addresses their criticism in verse 31. He says, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In that marvelous way that Jesus has of putting things, he says something that turns the gaze of the religious leaders back towards themselves. He says, in effect, you're right about these people. They're sick and they're hurting, and they're troubled, and they've lived unrighteous lives. But where else would a doctor be except among the sick? This is Christ's argument. I've come to heal sick people, not hang out with healthy people. That's my mission. That's why I've been sent. I didn't come for people who think they're righteous and right with God. I only came for sinners that know they're sick and need a savior. And so what Jesus is doing is he's turning their preconceptions about their own righteousness. And what a righteous relationship with God requires, he's disrupting that, turning it on its head. And he'll do that many, many times, actually through Luke's gospel. So take note, In Luke's gospel, how Jesus' definition of of righteousness disrupts the presumed definitions and expectations of righteousness by the Pharisees and religious leaders. Because it's one of the central themes that you'll see through the Sermon on the Mount, through Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders at the center of Christ's conflict was the fact that Jesus had a different definition of righteousness than they did completely different definition of what a right relationship with God and others look like later on in Luke let me show you one of these places where Jesus is going to drive the same truth home that he's come to actually bring a different kind of righteousness in a parable later on in Luke in chapter 18 involving a pharisee and a tax collector who were praying Let's turn to the right in Luke's gospel. Fast forward a little bit. We won't get here for probably around four or five years. <laughs> but let's read this parable. This is, this is an incredible and famous, well-known parable of Christ. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector who pray in verse 9 of chapter 18 of Luke. says that he told this parable to some, now listen, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Throughout Luke's gospel, you're going to see Jesus butting heads with the religious leader because he came with a definition of of righteousness that disrupted their sensibilities of what righteous people look like. If you're a visual learner like me, I've put a chart together to contrast the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders in Jesus' day, their preconceptions of what righteousness was with Jesus' righteousness. And so, you see, what Christ is doing through these two stories we've read, you see that that the righteousness of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, was a separatistic righteousness. It was salvation by segregation. So the Pharisees saw themselves as the holy remnant of Israel, and so they would segregate from sinful people or sinful interactions to preserve their own holiness and righteousness and piety. But righteousness, according to Jesus, is not separatistic. It's evangelistic. You don't separate yourself from culture. You've been called to be salt and light and to go into culture to live differently so that the world can see the uniqueness of Jesus' grace and life through your life and through your testimony. That's the righteousness that Jesus brings. It's evangelistic, not separatistic. Secondly, the righteousness of the Pharisees, it was somber and self-reflective. It was somber, but Jesus' righteousness is joyous and it leads to gratitude. And you see the somberness in the Pharisees as they show up to this feast and they begin grumbling. I mean, these are the party poopers. I mean, they don't throw these kinds of parties and you can see the scowl on the religious leaders Face And so to combat that sense of righteousness that's supposed to just make us somber, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 5. You can keep that slide up right there, and I'm just going to read this for you guys. He tells them a parable, and he says this after they confront him, and and they say, Why aren't your disciples fasting? They're not pious enough like us. Jesus said to them, Can you make... Wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. And so the religious leaders, their criticism to Jesus and his disciples is you're not pious enough and they should be fasting. You see, Jewish religion, it actually was commanded in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were supposed to fast on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, but the Pharisees and scribes added many other days of fasting to that. We know from Midrash and other rabbinic commentary that it was normal in Jesus' day for the religious leaders to fast twice a day and to look somber and miserable as they did that. And Jesus actually disrupts that completely, disagrees adamantly, and essentially tells us that the righteousness he brings is supposed to actually make life more like a joyful wedding feast than a funeral procession. Listen, folks, Christianity is not supposed to be a funeral dirge religion. It's supposed to resemble more like a joyous wedding feast and our communion with Jesus is supposed to be represented through our lives in joy that's contagious. And so this religious somberness, Jesus says, that doesn't make you more righteous whatsoever. We also see that the righteousness of the Pharisees and religious leaders, it's critical of the sin's Of others. This really comes through in the parable that we read of the Pharisee and the tax collector that's fasting. The Pharisee is critical of the sins of this other man and he thanks God that he's not a corrupt sinner like that guy. And and he just brags to God about his righteous deeds. But the righteousness that Jesus brings doesn't make us critical of the sin of others. It makes us honest and repentant with our own sins so that we pray like the tax collector in that parable and say, Lord, have mercy on me, on my broken life, on my sin. That's true righteousness, Not judgment and criticism that's focused on what's broken in others, but an honest account of what's broken and sinful inside this guy, inside this heart. That's true righteousness. But perhaps the greatest, greatest difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees and religious leaders and the righteousness of Jesus is that their righteousness was centered around their rule-keeping, an observance of the Torah, and the righteousness that Jesus came to bring, it's centered around a relationship with him. A righteousness that he brings and our righteousness is connected to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. A righteousness that Martin Luther described as an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves that Christ gives us as a gracious gift that we don't earn, that we can never take credit for. And all of our righteousness hinges on our gracious connection with Jesus, our Savior. Apart from him, none is righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and we're in the same boat as Levi and his friends. Now, to help us embrace this righteousness that Jesus came to bring, Jesus is, ends this selection here by telling the religious leaders two parables that we're going to hone in on in this passage. We see these two parables to help us respond to this life-changing righteousness that can make us new in verses 36 to 39. Christ illustrates this point with two parables. He says, No one tears a piece from a new garment, it puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You know, there's much that we could say about these parables. But Jesus' point is simple and clear. Jesus Christ did not simply come to be a great spiritual teacher. To teach men and women about what God requires. He was not simply a teacher. He came to transform everything. Not just to teach, but to transform. And the transformation that Jesus brings, brings with it a disruptive righteousness and a disruptive power that actually does away with the old and makes all things new. And this disruptive power that Jesus brings, it is the gospel of God which is more than a principle, it's a power. It's more than a spiritual principle, you learn. It's a power that actually changes the very fabric of your life and makes you a new kind of human being. So to illustrate this, to help us, as Jesus masterfully will do time and time again in Luke's gospel, he puts it in such simple terms. Parable number one, he says, nobody if they have an old garment where in those days moths and, and just life would, would create holes in, in garments, Jesus says you don't go and actually patch up an old garment by taking a new one and cut patches out of a new one to repair an old garment. Christ says if you do that, you'll not only ruin this perfectly good new garment— those new patches you put on the old will shrink the first time that you wash it, wash it, and it will ruin the old garment as well. It's Jesus way of saying he has not come to simply patch up our lives, but to create us into a completely new kind of human being. The very fabric of your life, you'll be like a new garment. He doesn't just want to patch up your problems. Jesus wants to change you from the inside and make you new. He illustrates this same point of this newness of life with his parable of the wine and the wineskins. Jesus says you can't, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins or it will burst the old wineskins. You see, a wineskin, in order to ferment wine, it had to be flexible. It had to expand. But wineskins would get old and they would become rigid. And so if you put new wine and it began fermenting, it would actually cause pressure and it would break the old wineskins. So they would have to be replaced in order to create new wine. And it's Jesus' way of saying, I've come to bring a new kind of righteousness that's so new and so different, it tears through the old structures and forms. The old way of relating to God and his law cannot accommodate the righteousness that I've come to bring. You must either be changed and receive this new life or your life will burst. You must be changed to receive the gospel I'm preaching to you, or it will spill over from your life. See, more often than not, I think sometimes as we spend time in a church, an attitude can set in that the old is good. Did you notice that the last verse In verse 39, Jesus says, nobody after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. If you look, actually in your Bible, there's probably a footnote where it says some manuscripts say better. The old is better. Can I tell you something? What Jesus brings is always better. It's always better, but it will disrupt everything. This out with the old and in with the new Savior, you cannot hold on to your old way of life. You cannot hold on to your current preconceptions about Christ and truly be changed into the person he wants you to be. You constantly, like a new wineskin, must be flexible and elastic and expand in order to take in all that Jesus wants to do in you. But can I tell you something? The new life that he brings, it's infinitely better than you can imagine. You don't have a category to contain what Jesus can do through your life. If he can take an extortioner like Levi and turn him into one of the greatest evangelists our world has ever known, who historians tell us was actually crucified like Christ as he was spreading the gospel into places like Egypt, What could he do through your life if you left some old things behind and prayed with sincerity, Jesus, come into my life. Take away these old dead-end ways that are making me miserable, and Lord, just make me new. Make me new. In a moment, we're going to go to the table this morning, and, and how appropriate for us as a community today to remember Christ as we take the bread and the cup this morning. I want to invite you, if you're here today and you've never prayed and invited Jesus Christ to change you, I believe that God led you here today so that your life might be made new. And this could be a celebration, a moment Where you celebrate the great party that's going on in heaven. Whenever a sinner repents and confesses they need a Savior, the scriptures tell us that all of heaven throws a party and celebrates. And that might be your party in your day today. Can we pray together, River West friends? Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we have seen, Father, your power to take our old lives and to change everything about us, Father, I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit might take the words that were proclaimed and that you might lead us into the new life. That you have prepared for us. Lord, we confess together that apart from you and your grace, none of us is right. Lord, we need you to be our great physician to heal us, to heal the broken things in our lives that we cannot fix, that we cannot make right. So this morning we humbly confessed that we need a Savior to save us and change us. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you're a God who goes after the Levites, that you are a friend of sinners. That gives us confidence this morning to call out to you and invite you into our lives to transform everything. So give us the courage and the faith, Lord, to welcome your gracious disruptions in our lives. To see them in the light, Lord, that that we have seen this morning that you are so committed to change us into people that resemble your son, Jesus. So we welcome your Spirit's, Spirit's work in our time right now. Just pray, Father, that if there are hearts in here that do not know you face to face, that this might be the morning, Lord, where they encounter you as Savior, as Redeemer, and as friend. In Christ's name we pray, amen.